Hey, what's up everyone? I'm Chelsea. Welcome to the Enneagram of Essence. This podcast is about reminding us of what is good about us deep down in our core. Our essence is something pure, beautiful, and powerful that can never be taken from us and never tainted, no matter what we've been through. It is our true self beneath all the layers of defenses, stories, and neurotic habits that we call our personality. Unfortunately, the Enneagram is often used in a way that reinforces our bad habits. It can become one more way to identify with our ego. But the most important thing I've learned from my Enneagram teachers is that our Enneagram type is actually not who we are. It's what keeps us from being who we are. It is possible to embark upon the epic journey from our ego to our essence. And there are two main tools that bring us there. One is the cultivation of presence, which means we must be in contact with ourselves in the living moment, the unfolding now, by having the courage to connect to our bodies, hearts, and minds. The second tool is to have spiritual disciplines or practices that help us return to this presence again and again. And there are myriad ways of doing this, as my guests on this show demonstrate through their stories about their own epic journeys back home to essence. Thank you so much for joining us today. to be speaking with John Kuhn, an Enneagram Type 1. After completing grad school in 2006, John spent eight years in nonprofit work in Eastern Europe, where he encountered and was transformed by the presence of love among children living on the margins of society. In 2018, he was honored to be included in the New Contemplatives Initiative of Spiritual Directors International, which is a group of exemplary spiritual directors under the age of 40. John completed his certificate in spiritual formation and the art of spiritual direction from the Well Streams program of the Spirituality Network in Columbus, Ohio, and is currently the director of operations at a progressive church in Columbus. Outside of his work, John enjoys playing cello, practicing Ashtanga yoga, cooking plant-based meals, and spending time with his spouse, Rachel, and his two children, Oscar and Genevieve. John can be contacted regarding spiritual direction through his website, www.underthesweetgum.com. All right, so we'll just start today with a little bit of centering and grounding so that we can get really connected to presence for this conversation together. So just taking some time to allow the energy to settle 
in the body. Noticing that there is a body here. Lots of movement and different vibrations and sensations. And take a moment to just breathe and take that all in. Really feeling the ground or the chair beneath us, supporting us. And the earth beneath that, supporting us. As we begin to settle in our bodies, we might notice that the heart starts to open up, become a little more expansive, more sensitive. So we bring our awareness to the heart center and just notice what's going on there. No need to change anything, just holding space for our hearts. And then we might notice as we shine the light of awareness onto the body and the heart, the mind begins to calm down. Just rest and settle into a state of ease and spaciousness. We take a few breaths, shining this light of awareness on our whole being, body, heart, and mind all together. And lastly, we'll just feel our feet on the ground, rooted and solid. And we'll come out of this practice now, but to bring that sense of presence and connection with us into our conversation. Mm. So thank you for being here, John. And I want to um, start us off with just this um, explanation of what really is the essence qualities. What are the essence qualities of type one? Mm -hmm. And the essence meaning, you know, our true self, this, this deeper part of us that is um, inherently good, that can never be tainted. Mm -hmm. And there's all kinds of things that layer on top of that with the ego's strategies and defenses. But underneath that, there is this essence of ourself that cannot ever be taken away. So for type one, the words that get used to describe the essence are sacredness and goodness. Mm -hmm. And when we are in presence and truly connected to this deeper part of ourselves, there's a, 
radical acceptance of the moment as it is. Mm -hmm. And this is an acceptance of ourselves in our mess and of the world and its mess and of our relationships and the other people. Um, and there's a sense of um, knowing that things are good. It's like, it's this original blessing that we hear mm -hmm. about in some of, some of our creation stories of you know, mm -hmm. God says, that God saw it all and it was good. Um, and there's like a, a holy um, kind of order to, to everything. And when we're connected to this space, um, there's really a sense of trusting and knowing that we are a child of God and that there's perfection in my imperfection. There, mm -hmm. that, that sense of striving drops away. Mm -hmm. um, there's also a sense of receptivity here and being able to truly listen to our inner wisdom, mm -hmm. uh, which leads to this um, quality that is so beautiful in ones, which is discerning. There's a discerning conscience mm -hmm. um, that leads to skillful action moment by moment by moment. Mm -hmm. And there's a sense of knowing what's truly good for me and what grows my soul. Mm -hmm. um, being able to, to parse those things out. There's, there's also this sense of um, like alignment of being in attunement with, with wisdom itself. Um, almost like a, <laughs> a channeling that happens that that's, um, it's both a part of us and outside of us. Mm -hmm. So, so these are all fabulous, wonderful, things to talk about and um, remember that they are a part of us. And then, of course, um, we know that the personality or the ego, um, when it starts to come online, it starts to feel like we get disconnected from this original blessing, the goodness, the sacredness, the, the purity of who I am. And mm -hmm the inner critic comes in and substitutes for that sense of discernment and starts to mimic that discernment. And it turns into judgment. It turns into striving um, for order. And it uses lots of rules and expectations to kind of keep us in line to make sure that we are acting good. Um, and so when we lose presence, the world starts to feel like chaotic and corrupt and, and dark. And, and it's really um, because we've lost this connection to um, mm -hmm. that inner integrity and, and blessing. So, mm -hmm. so that's really the, the full circle journey <laughs> that, we're, that we're here to talk about. But I just wanna pause and, and hear if there's anything that stood out to you from that or, or how it affected you to hear that description. Yeah, thank you, Chelsea. It was such a lovely introduction and, and the meditation too, and then this piece, um, it all just really resonates with me. Um, and I'm noticing right now what comes up for me is, is almost a sense of sadness of how um, not in touch I was with my original goodness and sacredness, um, especially in my childhood and my upbringing. Um, and as I've gotten to know that, more recently in my life and have become aware of it, um, the way it has transformed me. And so there's a sense of, of um, 
like reawakened longing for that goodness. Mm. I think as I hear you um, in this description, because it resonates so much with me. Mm. Um, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, there's, there's a piece of Enneagram teaching um, that comes from Russ Hudson that is really interesting. He kind of talks about like the heart of each of the Enneagram types and what, um, like if we were to really, really feel our heart, we would experience this. Um, and it's the thing we're trying to not feel. And for ones, it's grief. It is this like sadness that is underneath the layers of, um, you know, tension and, and judging and opinions. And all of that is meant to keep us from feeling our, our sadness at, at um, you know, of what has been lost in ourselves and, and in the world, just knowing like how the world really could be mm -hmm. and seeing the potential and feeling the, um, that gap between like where we are and where we could be. And there's a deep like wailing in the heart that wants to come out when we actually allow ourselves to feel that. Yeah, that, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that, um, because it resonates so much with me and it reminds me of a time early in the pandemic when um, I went to my son's preschool, he's um, almost five. And so this was, you know, um, a little bit less than a year ago. And I went to pick up a, a project that the teachers had created because he wasn't going to school at the time for him to take home. And I went into the schoolyard um, and I, I saw the empty playground. Um, there were no children on it. And I started crying there just by myself. And it was the first time in the first couple of months of the pandemic that I had cried. Mm. And it was grief that was much deeper than just about the pandemic and what I thought we had lost or what I knew we had lost at that time. It was much bigger and deeper. And so I feel like what you're naming is really that um, sense of, um, of what I had lost um, in my childhood, like this ability to connect with my goodness and um, to play, I think is something that um, I really feel like I, I lost um, as a child, that I didn't feel free um, to play for whatever reason. Um, and so grief is something that in, in the process of learning about the Enneagram that has come up. And I, I didn't know that this was something particular to the one. So that, that's um, really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you brought up childhood. So let's Let's go back in, in your journey and take a look. Um, so when you think about little John, like either from childhood or teenage years or even like young adult years, like how was your personality, your oneness kind of operating and creating stress for you and, and or other people around you even? Well, the first thing that comes to mind um, is my um, relationship with the church and with religion. I was raised in a really conservative evangelical um, church and I embraced it fully hmm. because I think it told this story. Um, really, the story is the opposite of the story that you just told, that I was um, born really evil and bad and separated from God um, and that in order to 
um, connect with God, I needed to believe a certain number of things and maybe do a certain number of things. And um, even if I believed those things and did those things, I had to continue them to sort of prove that um, that belief was right and correct and um, authentic maybe. Mm-hmm. And so I spent really my childhood and my teenage years really trying to be good and to follow all of the rules uh, because I felt like I was risking a relationship with God and um, an eternity um, wow. with uh, if, I, if I couldn't meet that standard of those expectations. Um, and so sometimes I wonder if this um, these qualities of being a one were sort of shaped by that opposite story in the church that I embraced so fully, or if I was maybe affected so deeply by that story because I'm a one. I've never quite figured out like sort of a chicken chicken or the egg kind yeah. of a thing. Right. Um, but, but, but I know they're related somehow. Yeah. Yeah. I relate with that so much too, as a one as well. Like I know other people who heard the exact same message as I did as children <laughs> in the church. And it kind of just rolled off you know, rolled off their backs and they didn't, you know, take, take it in too much or didn't care too much. And I really latched onto it too. And, Mm. um, and I think even though it was under this kind of like uh, wrapped up in the pretty bow of like being talked about, like grace and forgiveness, it was actually this message of like, well, you need grace and forgiveness because you're a piece of shit. Like that's, that was really the more, like the more subtle message underneath the words that were being said. Cause nobody told me I was like bad or a piece of shit, but that, I guess the word sin <laughs> um, and just this, this, original sin kind of, um, and on all the rules, I just, I swallowed all of that too. Like it just really seemed like, okay, this is what I'm being told to do. This is what, (laughs) this is what I have to do. Yeah. Yeah. I really resonate with that. Mm. I remember we were told that like, we were like bloody rags before God. Um, Mm. Yeah. Just separated and evil and. Wow. um, Yeah. Mm. It, It feels like it was a, a constant battle or a fight um, to, to be good and to sort of prove um, my faith is what I would have called it um, at the time, uh, mm-hmm. to prove it true. Um, mm-hmm. I was fighting. Yeah, and those uh, those words like prove and, and fighting, it's like there's so much tension wrapped up in those words, um, like so much energy it just feels like so much energy is being expended. Um, like it's like our life force is being leaked out <laughs> into this, this project of, you know, the project of being the good little kid where like that energy could be redirected somewhere else more useful, but it gets like used up in yeah. this, all of this like striving um, energy. Yeah. It reminds me, we had these, um, we called them accountability groups when I was in high school and college. And these were groups of people who met um, and talked about their sins and the, you know, all, all the things that we had done that week that were wrong and how we were trying the next week to not do them and to, you know, be better, be good. 
Um, and all of that energy, like for me, it was almost this obsession. I would call it an obsession when I was in high school and college to be good and to not sin. Mm. Um, all of that energy was really just sort of focused on myself, I think. And it wasn't about how am I using that energy to uh, create something better in the world or to do something in the world. Um, and, and that I think is grief for me as well. Like how much was lost in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. So what about, um, there's, you know, the, the emotional passion of type one is resentment or anger. So when you look back, like, where do you see that resentment, like in your earlier life? And I'm not saying that it doesn't still come up because it's a, it's a lifelong journey. <laughs> um, but, but I'm guessing it was more prevalent in your earlier days. And it just like in hindsight, where do you see it kind of fitting into the way you were living your life? You know, that it's, the way you pose that question is really interesting because I would say almost the opposite for me is that I'm more aware of it more recently than in my childhood um, because I think I had repressed it so much or it was repressed so much that I didn't even know that I was angry. Uh -huh. And so this was actually what one of the reasons that I realized I am a one um, was when I began to become aware of my anger. Mm. And I don't, I was thinking about it before this podcast, like how, how did I become aware of my anger? And I can't really remember what um, brought it up for me. It might have been beginning spiritual direction or different contemplative practices, um, or it might have just been growing in self-awareness. I don't know. Um, but I remember there was a time where I noticed I'm using the words irritated, frustrated, be annoyed a lot, like in my journaling, maybe in spiritual direction sessions. Yeah. And there was a day where I remember thinking like, am I angry? Yeah. And I didn't even really like say the word because it felt bad to be angry, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, because, you know, to admit that would mean I'm not good. And it was okay to sort of admit these other nuances of anger that I'm yeah. frustrated or irritated, but to be angry. Mm. Um, and then I, I began to notice it. And one of the ways I notice when my anger is really coming up now is that I notice it in my body. And this is something that I'm uh, curious to hear more about maybe later. Um, but I will begin moving around physically. And often I will start um, adjusting the physical space that I'm in. So I'll start cleaning, I'll start tidying. Uh, I'll start throwing things away. Like mm -hmm. when I'm really angry, I'm, I'll carry a box to the dumpster because of stuff. Um, mm -hmm. and, and it's very physical. And I've learned to notice that that um, is when my anger is coming up and how it's expressed and this need for order um, in the physical space that I'm in. And when I think about my childhood, um, I always, I would go through these cycles of having a really messy room and then I remember I would have like one day where I would just clean it and make it absolutely perfect. And I would line up the pencils in my drawer and everything was spotless. Like there wasn't a speck of dust. And then I would let it go. Mm -hmm. I think the, those were the moments where the anger was sort of expressing itself. 
um, but I certainly wouldn't have identified it as anger. Yeah. And, and then also the other piece of it would be um, my self-criticism or the inner critic, mm. um, which is where it, it really comes up um, now. And I think previously just this real feeling of like being so hard on myself um, and so angry that I don't meet the certain standard that I have. Mm-hmm. So that's the other that I think it, it manifested itself early in my life, but I wasn't aware of that. I think I would have said that that was God at that time. Yes. <laughs> yes. And this is like such an important thing for ones to explore, even for ones who are atheists. It's like there is on some fundamental level, we project our inner critics expectations onto God. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And it's like the voice in my head isn't, it's, I don't see it as an inner critic. I I see it as what God is demanding of me. Yes. And it's not even conscious. It's just, it's, it's what's kind of like in the background Mm -hmm. running the show. (laughs) Yeah. But because the inner critic of the one is so harsh, um, there is this assumption that that's the way God is too. Yeah. And, and a lot of the inner critic for me came from the voices of pastors and religious leaders. And so I associated that voice with God, I think, really easily. Yeah. And so if I, I didn't wake up at 5 a.m. this morning as a high schooler to pray and read the Bible, then I was just a mess for the entire day because just beating myself up for like what a messed up person I am. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I never would have said that that was anger. Yeah, yeah. But it very clearly was, I think. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes the anger is... Um, you know we can like maybe the more obvious versions of it are like getting angry at the imperfect world or the imperfect people around us or at our own imperfections but really I think more fundamentally the anger is about um being asked to abandon ourselves (laughs) Mm -hmm. like there's this um abandonment of that original blessing that feels Mm -hmm so wrong (laughs) but but we go along with it and it's like wow of course that would um that would bring up some anger because it's like we're we're being asked to to cut off uh like the most beautiful part of ourselves and and i mean that from external forces but also from internal you know, our own internal stories and, 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 um, inner critic beliefs. But, but yeah, as you mentioned, like also a lot of it get, a lot of us get it from church or from the rules that we grew up in our family or, um, or what's imposed on us in school. I mean, there's so many places where this kind of comes at us. Yeah, absolutely. And that to me feels connected with the grief as well. Hmm. Like, I'm realizing just now as I'm talking to you, there's sort of a fine line for me between the anger and the grief. Mm. Like I think it's really connected. Um, mm. And that anger, that loss of the connection with the original goodness um, then sort of turns into grief. Maybe it softens if I really sit with it. Mm. Mm-hmm. 
So how about latching on to opinions and and fixed views? <laughs> Is this um do you have any examples or or ideas about how that pattern, that piece of the the type personality has created stress or problems for you? <laughs> well, I mean, again, it, it really resonates with being raised in sort of a fundamentalist um, religious environment where sort of there's one way um, and it's the only way that's true. Um, and it's your responsibility to convince other people that this way is true. Mm. Um, and so that rigidity, I think, was really easy for me to, um, to accept and embrace um, as well as moral rigidity mm. uh, about like what is right and wrong. Uh-huh. Yeah. How things are done. So an example I think of is um, you know, when I would in high school, um, I really felt like it was my responsibility to evangelize people around me and to like convert them to my way of thinking. Um, and I remember I told a girl um who was Catholic that she needed to uh read the Bible because Catholics don't care about the Bible or something, or whatever my my point of view was. Yeah. And really, I think it was so harmful because there was no, there was a total lack of um, curiosity or questioning or any sort of openness, but it was just this very rigid, like, this is what is true, um, and I must convince other people of it. Yeah. Um, and that's so much pressure to put uh, on oneself, to be the one that needs, that's like responsible for other people's salvation or even for non-religious people like to be responsible for other people's well-being or happiness like that's that's an unrealistic and mm -hmm. unfair really expectation to burden oneself with and you know it, it's interesting that you bring that up now like i think about my life now um and i have certain say in my life there are certain spiritual practices that have really worked for me and in my mind, it's like, well, those must work for everybody. And so I've got to like convince my family members or my friends, like try this spiritual practice because this is the way, right? Yeah. And so sort of the same thing, even though, you know, now I'm much more open in my theology, I, I'm still really rigid in, in what might work for somebody else. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now like sort of noticing that, um, yeah, and how it's manifested uh, currently. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So what does work for you as far as spiritual practices or getting in touch with your self, you know, getting, getting centered, present, mm -hmm. um, detaching from the inner critic? I mean, there's so many, um, you know, ways we could frame this, but, but I'm just wondering, like, how, how would you frame spiritual practice for you and how, how did you start on that path? Um, kind of detaching from your old way of the way that you were raised and mm -hmm. discovering, you know, some new practices um, or new mm -hmm. viewpoints even mm -hmm. that were more freeing. Yeah. Well, I was really introduced to some new types of spiritual practices when I was living abroad. I was working for a nonprofit organization that uh, highly recommended that we all, that all of the staff see a spiritual director. 
And I was at a point in my life where I was questioning everything about God. Like I felt like I knew nothing. I was in the abyss of the hero's journey, if that means anything. Yes. Like I, I, was, <laughs> I was in the darkness and the, the unknowing. And um, both my spiritual director and this organization began presenting some spiritual practices that uh, made sense to me in the midst of the not knowing that I could practice um, in a way that didn't feel like it was misaligned with my experience. Um, so that was sort of my introduction to some new types of practices. Um, and the ones that I think are really related to the one um, are maybe a little bit unorthodox. And so I, I kind of want to talk about them Great. Um, and some things I do now. These are not necessarily things that I was introduced to right at the beginning. Okay. Um, but one of them is um, I try to have a daily check-in with my inner critic. And I've given my inner critic a name. And um, we have a check-in in the morning because I have found that it is that my inner critic actually serves a role for me and serves a purpose. There are ways that my inner critic can help me. Mm. So in the morning, I thank my inner critic for, um, you know, getting me out of bed and reminding me of some of the things that I need to do that day. Mm. Um, and then I ask the inner critic to sort of take a seat. Yeah. And I say, thank, like, thank you for this reminder of all the things that I have to do and all of the expectations that you have for me. These are the things that I'm going to take for today. And then I'm going to have you sit down and like, we'll check in again tomorrow. Mm. And that, that has been um, really helpful in sort of um, creating a relationship and a dialogue with the inner critic. Um, mm. Because... Um, the inner critic is no longer this enemy that I need to like repress or shove away, um, but, but I can cultivate a relationship and I'm the one who um, is in control. The inner critic is no longer in control of me, but I am in control and I can ask the inner critic to take, to take a seat um, when it's no longer serving me. And that's so important that you point that out, that it's not about uh, shaming the inner critic or vanquishing it like this isn't about yeah. killing it or banishing it um because it it might go away for a few moments but if it's gonna like go out into the parking lot and do some push-ups and come back in with a vengeance <laughs> you know if we're trying to push it away so um and this feels so counterintuitive but yeah. i love this practice that you've named it's almost like befriending it you know it's like um you don't have to to be mean to it or, or you don't even have to coddle it but it's like there is this new relationship that's formed um that yeah just removes some of the power and like distances you a little bit from it as as thinking of something that isn't you it's like a separate character <laughs> right. but, yeah. Right. yeah yeah and so there's that creates some distance Mm -hmm. My supervisor in my spiritual direction training program talked about these sort of inner characters that we have. And the image that she used was that we're on a motorcycle and with like one of those little sidecars next to the motorcycle. And we need to pick these characters up out of our unconscious and like put them in the seat, become aware of them and integrate them into our life. But they're not riding on the motorcycle with us. They're not steering. Like they're just there for the ride mm -hmm. and we can consult them 
when it's useful and helpful, or we can sort of just let them be in that sidecar. Um, wow. I've always thought that image was um, really helpful. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. The sidecar. <laughs> yes, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> Hmm. So what else? You said you had a few, a few unconventional things that you do now. <laughs> yeah. So then, as far as um, being a one, a couple of other things that have been really helpful for me are leaning into seven energy and leaning into four energy as well. Mm-hmm. And so one of the spiritual practices that might be surprising for people is play mm-hmm. for me, sort of this leaning into the seven energy um, and to play in such a way that, um, I don't have to be perfect. And so, um, this is something that I practice with my kids because I have a five and a two and a half year old at home. Like play is so present in my face all the time. Mm. And this is a gift. And I often find myself like in the kitchen trying to like make a meal or wash the dishes or do whatever like has to be done. And I I notice sort of my anger about everything that has to be done. And my kid, like my son will come up to me and say, daddy, will you come play with me? And like, I notice immediately, like, no, like I've got to do this, this and this, I'm so sorry. And then I stop and I notice like, this is an invitation for me to go play. Mm. And when I take that invitation, the healing that happens when I'm really present in that moment of play and the freedom that I can experience um, to be silly, to build something that is imperfect and that I can knock over after I built it, like to run around the backyard, like to kick a ball and like miss the goal, like, right? Like just to have fun with like no purpose. Yeah. Um, so freeing because those are the things that I didn't allow myself to do when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And, and and so that's the seven energy and then the four energy is similar um, but for me it's creativity and I've been recently with my kids um, we found these videos online of um, art projects that are really simple because I'm not a visual artist but they're for kids and so um, I've been doing these projects with them and they're sort of unconventional And it has been so healing for me to do something that I don't feel good at, that I feel like I can't do it perfectly, that always ends up being just sort of um, a little bit off Mm. and to like embrace the practice Um, Mm. and to just let creativity flow um, has been another really healing thing for me. Mm. Um, Yeah, I love that. Yeah, and thanks for bringing in those those two arrow points, the seven and the four, because those those arrows we're connected to on the inner lines for everybody, no matter what type we are, that's like the path of healing mm-hmm. in both directions. Those are like the piece that's missing that we need to balance us out. <laughs> um, and I also love, I noticed when I asked you like, okay, so what spiritual practices are helpful and you named creativity and play and talking to your inner critic and what you didn't name, and maybe you do these things too, but you didn't name reading scripture or daily prayer or going on pilgrimage or like sort of these more traditional like ways that you might check a box to be a good spiritual 
person, right? <laughs> Which probably I think, you know, for one, um, it's, it is helpful to try to get out of the box and like do things that, um, are like breaking the rules a little bit. <laughs> like for me, I, I remember at one point I, um, started swearing like intentionally mm -hmm. because, um, before actually probably all the way through almost all the way through college, I did not swear. I was a person who did not swear. And that was the way I was raised. And I would have gotten a spanking if I ever said those words in my house. And at some point I started swearing and it was so liberating yes. that I decided, oh my gosh, swearing like a sailor is one of my spiritual practices. <laughs> because I can do this thing that is breaking the rules. Um, and at first I was kind of doing it almost to like test God to see like, can I be this little badass and will you still love me? You know, and, and of course the answer was yes. And, but it, there was like this trial first of like being rebellious and then realizing, oh, I can just settle into this as like using swearing as a tool consciously when I want to, <laughs> as a way to um, remind myself that, you know, sometimes you can throw the rules out and perfection isn't, isn't the way. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's absolutely right. I think, you know, there are things like um, following a recipe, but doing something differently. Mm. Or sometimes if I'm writing um, an email or something, like I notice a typo that I've made and just leaving it. Like, mm. do, I dare, do I dare to like leave this typo without going back <laughs> and correcting it? Yeah. There's some of the practices. Um, another thing I, I didn't mention, what, one of my spiritual practices is yoga. I practice um, Ashtanga yoga, which is actually a very um, traditional kind of rule-based um, style of yoga. And there's this really, there's this prescription for what you do every day, but I like to kind of break the rules. Mm. Um, I think I was so attracted to the style of yoga because it was so prescriptive. Um, but now I'm finding like the freedom is really in breaking the rules. And, and, and like you said, like, well, like, what is God going to think if I break the rules? Right. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I really resonate with, with your example. Yeah. <laughs> maybe this is connected to yoga and maybe it's, um, there, there might be other things that you would say about this, but you mentioned earlier, like knowing you're angry by feeling your body. Yes. So I'm wondering, like, what has that journey been for you of like getting in contact with your body and actually noticing sensations and, and allowing them, you know, and, and like noticing the tension and the release and the emotions that are behind that and, and how that's all wrapped up together. Like what has been your learning journey with, with that? Yeah, that, that's a huge um, question. Thank you for that. Mm. You know, I, I think I was so disconnected from my body. I had no idea what was going on in, at, at one point in time. Um, and I think that yoga um, has really been um, the place where I have gotten to know my body. 
Mm. Um, first time in my life. And specifically, I think being raised in evangelical Christianity, um, we were taught that um, our bodies didn't really matter because our souls were going to go off somewhere else that actually mattered. And so our bodies didn't really matter. Um, and so I was never really taught to pay attention to how am I feeling, um, to take care of my body, what does my body need? Like these were questions that were actually even a little bit bad to, 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 right? Like to pay attention to my body and to care for myself, to notice what I'm feeling was sort of like self-absorbed. And so I really shut it all off, I think. Mm. Um, and also within evangelical Christianity, there's this, um, there's something called that a lot of people call purity culture and this notion around our sexuality that it really is just something that is bad, especially if you're not married, um, if you're queer, um, I identify as queer. And I think that that really caused me to just shut down anything that I was feeling in my body uh, right. because it was bad, right? Yeah. And even the language that gets used is like the spirit versus the flesh. Yeah. Right? It's like, and the flesh gets sort of a bad rap of like, yeah. sometimes in certain traditions translate the flesh as the body and which, you know, understandably so. I don't think that was the initial and original meaning of that, but that's the way people interpret it. And, and think that, okay, the body is evil and the impulses, especially for ones who try to repress their impulses, like the, the, the impulses of the body are, um, are a slippery slope to hell, basically. <laughs> and that right. feels very, very real. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so yes, yoga um, was the place where I um, really began to get to know my body. Um, I went to my first yoga class when I was living abroad in the, the Eastern European country of Moldova. Of mm. all places, I was introduced to yoga <laughs> there. And I remember the teacher would say things like, just observe, like, what are you feeling right now? What are you, like, what are you noticing in this pose? And I had never done that before. It was like mind blowing. Like, what, like paying attention to sensation in my body? Like, I, I just didn't know. Um, and, and so that began this process of sort of opening it up that has really just, I, I think, transformed me and my awareness. Um, the other body practice is um, bio-spiritual focusing, which is something that I was um, introduced to by my first spiritual director. And she would often invite me to notice where I was feeling emotions in my body. Um, and, and so this was actually happening in my life at the same time that I was introduced to yoga. And so I had these, it was coming at me from different places. This like, it, it really is important to pay attention to your body and there's something in there. And the belief in focusing and a focusing practice is that there's, there's wisdom in your body and really paying attention to it. Um, and so that was just really powerful for me and, and continues to be powerful to just notice like what is happening in my body? Um, what wisdom is there? What images are there? What memories and feelings? Wow. Um, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. So as we're nearing the end of our time here, I would love to just hear um, a little bit of reflection about like how you see yourself as a spiritual director, as a, a, a person with 
a calling and, you know, and another piece of that I'm guessing is the calling of being a parent. <laughs> um, and, and maybe there are other pieces that you identify in, in calling as well, but with how, um, how you relate to service now, um, because we know <laughs> that, that ones are these dutiful types who um, can get into like applauding, methodical, um, almost like robotic, just assumption that I, you know, need to be available, need to be giving of myself, need to be constantly offering. Um, and, and there's, it, you know, the, the service can be coming from that kind of space, like the disconnected, like obligation <laughs> that leads to resentment or, it can be coming from this more connected space that's more connected to, to essence and, and presence and, mm -hmm. um, and calling. And so I, I would just love to hear your reflections on, on any of that. Yeah, that's really, um, those are interesting questions. Um, I think that part of my answer is, has been in cultivating the practice of having a day of rest. Mm. Um, for me, which is something I never had in my earlier life. Um, and so it's really been about putting up boundaries that are healthy um, and learning what it means to take care of myself and to rest. Mm. And really, what does it mean for me to rest? Because as a one, I'm always doing and serving and right, like action, movement, like out there doing things. And so to pause and to be still, um, feels really counterintuitive, even though it's really what I'm longing for mm. deep down. Um, and it was very difficult at first um, to sort of begin to set up these boundaries. Um, and so I do have a practice of um, every Saturday as much as I can to really just disconnect. Um, I connect with my family still and my kids, of course, and that work never ends ever. Yeah. But as much as I can, it's really a day um, to rest and connect with essence, like you said. Um, and, and I find that the rest of the week, I'm in a much more grounded and centered place. Um, and also, you know, just trying to do that on a daily basis as well. So finding these moments and these pockets um, of boundary, of like noticing the texts go off on my phone and choosing to not respond, um, choosing to not respond to emails, um, choosing to not apologize for taking more than two days to respond to an email, mm. um, right? Like mm -hmm. noticing all the expectations that I have on myself yeah. and just reconnecting with essence and letting myself be um, as I am. Mm. Does that sort of get at the heart yeah. of your question? Yes, I, yeah, I'm so glad that you brought that up. Um, yeah, just stillness. <laughs> is so counterintuitive yeah. for many of us just in the culture that we live in, but, but especially for certain Enneagram types and ones being one of those types for sure. It, it almost, it feels threatening to the ego to, to rest. <laughs> yeah. The inner critic does not like that. Not at all. My, one of my friends who is also a one recommended or invited me to just sit somewhere and do nothing and set a timer for minutes. 
And in my mind, I noticed like, well, I could practice breathing or I could reflect on this, but it's like, really, no, can you really do nothing for 30 minutes? And that is so challenging. <laughs> um, and that practice, I haven't really explored that practice a lot, but it's something I'm really curious about. Um, yeah. There always has to be something, well, at least like, let me notice my breath because then I'm at least accomplishing something. I must be healing something, right? Yes. Can <laughs> you just do nothing? Wow. Yeah, that's so interesting because that question has recently come up for me too. Hmm. And um, the closest I think I've gotten to it, like there was one day on the weekend where I just laid down on my bed with my dog and I, um, I put on the most relaxing music I could think of. Hmm. And I didn't set a timer or anything. <laughs> I just was like, I'm going to just lay here as long as it feels good to lay here. Mm. And it was amazing. It felt so healing. It felt like the cells in my body were rejoicing. <laughs> and, and I also am noticing um, there was a part of me that like needed that music on because it was like that you know, that kind of helped facilitate the relaxation. Um, but I was still doing something like I was listening to an album that I wanted to listen to. <laughs> you know? and so, so yeah, I think there's and, and not that that's wrong, but you know, it's, it's like, I'll use that as long as that's what's needed but you know maybe at some point the music won't even be needed anymore mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so um it's just an interesting question to and practice to hold so yeah it really is and and all that comes up um in those moments of stillness it's like so much um mm -hmm. at least yeah right so many urges to go do something else uh, yeah. <laughs> thoughts yeah, right. <laughs> yes. Well, um, I wish we could keep talking forever and ever, but <laughs> we, we are getting to the end of our time. But before we end, um, what I've been doing on each of these podcast interviews is ending with a poem that I think um, relates in some way to what the type is going through and, and begins to kind of point at, at the essence of, of our type. And so the poem I would like us to reflect on today is Wild Geese by Mary Oliver. So what we'll do is um, I'm gonna read through it two times. So the first time we'll just listen kind of conceptually to, to get like all the images and the meaning. Mm -hmm. And then the second time through, I'll read it again. And the invitation is for us to listen with our whole being. So including the body and the listening, the heart and, and the more spacious mind, not the conceptualizing mind, but the, mm -hmm. just the open present mind. And then we'll, we'll see if there's a word or a phrase that pops out and is speaking to you in this moment so okay so this is wild geese by mary oliver you do not have to be good 
You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal skin of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clear blue air are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. So I'll read it again, and we'll just listen with that openness and receptivity and see which word or phrase pops out. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal skin of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clear blue air are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. Mm. So was there a word or a phrase that stood out to you? Yeah, it was the phrase 100 miles. Oh. Because it sounds so ridiculous. And it's like, who told you that you have to go a hundred miles to get anywhere? And it, it's we've been talking about the inner critic and it's this feeling of like this ridiculous expectation that, um, you know, this person is crawling through the desert when they already belong, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and what came to mind, I was reminded of um, a workshop, an Enneagram workshop that I participated in in my training program. Um, And when the instructor talked about ones, she said that the feeling that a one has is that they've been kicked out of heaven and have to spend the rest of their life trying to get back in. And when I heard that, I cried. And I knew, like I knew that I knew that I was a one when she said that because it resonated so deeply. Um, And that's to me like what this poem is speaking to is that person who feels like they've been kicked out of heaven and they're crawling through the desert for a hundred miles. Um, and it's like, for what, why? And like, who told you? Mm, and yeah. so it's just, I've never thought, I've heard this poem so many times that I've never heard that 100 miles as the inner critic. Oh, yes. Oh, I love oh it, That's how it spoke to me today. Awesome. 
Yeah. For me, the phrase that stood out was, meanwhile, the world goes on. Mm. And then there's this lovely description of what's happening in nature. And it's like the beginning of the poem is this whole drama about it's all internal. It's all self-imposed drama <laughs> and stress and shame. And meanwhile, <laughs> the earth keeps turning on its axis and the trees and the mountains and the geese are doing their thing. And, and it's all already all right. <laughs> It's like everything that I'm trying so hard to make okay yes. and is, is already okay. <laughs> um, there's this, um, this songwriter, um, Ryan O'Neill, who goes by Sleeping at Last, who wrote a song for one of each of the Enneagram types. And the line that stands out to me from that song is, grace requires nothing of me. Yeah. And I yeah. feel that so strongly in this poem and just in our conversation together. Uh, yeah, that resonates so much with me too. Mm. Isn't that the message that we've been wanting to hear? Like, that grace requires nothing of you. Like you are in now. Like it doesn't matter. Like nothing else matters. Like just because you are you, like you're in, like you're good. <laughs> Right. Yes. Right. Yeah, the kingdom is here. <laughs> yes. Relax. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, John, thank you so much. This has been so lovely and, and really, really fun for me as well. So yeah, thank you so much for having me. This has been so much fun for me too, and I've learned a lot. Oh good. <laughs> awesome. A big shout out to singer-songwriter Lynn O'Brien, who provided our theme music for this podcast. You can find her music and coaching work online at lynnobrien.love. For more on my work, including Enneagram courses, coaching, Enneagram art, and spiritual direction, visit chelseaforbrook.com. Please share this podcast with your friends, and I look forward to having you join us next week for our next epic journey. Until then, may the deep peace of presence be with you.